Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we are here with Chad Figueres, also known as Pretty Bad Lefty on Twitter, host of The Discourse, which is an excellent podcast. Hello, Chad. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, I don't get to do a lot of podcasts. Uh, except, <laughs> except your own, which is a wonderful podcast that I listen to a lot of in preparation for this show. And everybody else out there should subscribe and listen as well. Yeah, you should. All joking aside, you should you all listen to things I have to say. Yes, always, especially now, because this is going to get really real this time. We're going to be talking about all sorts of interesting stuff. But I think to start things out, Jamie had a uh, sociological question for you. Yeah, so you recently did some sociological research on the sociology website, twitter.com. <laughs> and you did, a, I'll call it a survey. So, quote, you asked, I've recently been enjoying white staple bands I've never listened to before. Tell me a white band and I'll tell you if it's actually good or if you've just been poisoned by your socialization, family and white media. Unquote. So what did you find most surprising about white music? Um, Which white artists speak to you and why? Okay, so I'll be I'll give a little bit of my background first. Right. So I grew up in Brooklyn in the 90s. Uh, my mother was a pretty big rap fan, Jay-Z, Biggie Smalls, and so that kind of defined my musical taste up until the point when I went to uh, college, right, where I started branch out a little bit more. But then, by the time I was in college, I mostly only listened to music you can work out to. So, again, that was mostly, like, rap music, gangster rap, uh, high-energy stuff, a little bit of 80s pop. I do like my 80s pop. I mean, you are the international avatar of the Swoletariat, so I, you, you need something. I am. You know, I, you gotta have something to keep the energy flowing. That's right. Uh, what about so, new Metal? That's the white people workout music. So, okay, so I'm confused. <laughs> which one is new Metal and which one is post-grunge? Mm. Oh, uh, Disturbed is new Metal. Uh, Puddle of Mud is post-grunge. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I'm like, okay, which one is... You like, have to go on Street Fight Radio to talk about this with them, all Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) They'll talk about new metal all day long. They'll tell you more than you ever wanted to know. Because new metal is like disturbed, but like post grunge is just Creed and bands that sound like Creed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bands that suck, yes. Yeah, so like I love uh, post grunge music. Okay. That was was my sort of. So again, I had, I guess that sort of answered the question, right? So the reason I asked this question on Twitter was because I had been listening to a lot of uh, post grunge music. I listened to a lot of Creed. Uh, and that led me to like, uh, what was it Theory of a Dead Man, which is just Creed, but only singing about girls who dumped them. Not God, but uh, about girls. Yeah, only girls. Uh, only that that one. Well, chick God is a woman, so <laughs> God is a woman, and uh, Jesus is actually trans. Well, now I was gonna say, you know, well, I was gonna say non-binary, but <laughs> that's, I guess, fair. Yeah, that's fair. That's uh, fair. But so yeah, so then I ended up at Hoobastank, and I remember, oh, Hoobastank was a thing. <laughs> and it's so like Hoobastank and bands like Hoobastank, so like, um, I would say, what, not Third Eye Blind, but uh, Five for Fighting. Those are just like bands that was the background sounds to like CW shows like Smallville. Uh. And so I was like, okay, uh, this is good. Wow. And I, then I, like, I heard Fleetwood Mac for the first time. <laughs> and I was like, this is interesting. Not as good as Hoobastank, but like, it's still, still pretty good. I like how you vaulted over all of the white music that I like and went straight to Hoobastank. <laughs> okay. And Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac. And so I then, like Fleetwood Mac, sorry. Mm. I mean, they're fine. They're, not, they're no Hoobastank. Well, I, mean, like, <laughs> I mean, like, the chain is pretty good. The, but have the you, landslide. The landslide. A beautiful fucking song. That's have, a great song. have you heard, so like, the chain is pretty good but have you actually heard um i want to say 
uh, wait, Straight Direction? The, the, the video with Kanye West in it? Mm-mm. Yeah, it's, it's great. Anyway, point is this. So I, I asked Twitter that, to suggest some bands for me that like that white people grow up listening to that aren't Hoobastank. And I got some pretty good, like, I got some pretty good advice, and I got some pretty shitty advice. <laughs> uh, so I will say certain bands surprised me. Neutral Milk Hotel. Ah. Like, I thought I was going to hate it, because, and I'll tell you why. Um, because there is this genre of band that is called indie music now, indie bands, which really just means, like, mediocre bands that sound exactly the same, mm. but have weird names. Mm. So, like, Vampire Weekend mm. and uh, Churches and like of mice and of monsters and men or of mice and i can't remember what tell me was. more about how much you hate vampire weekend jamie's <laughs> got history with vampire weekend it's like they're just they are appropriating gothic american culture <laughs> it is not okay are they goth i just thought they were no like, they're the opposite <laughs> no. Like pastel. They're, they, if they are literally the people the preppy assholes who were mean to little goth jamie in college so this is really she went mm-hmm. to college with vampire weekend you don't know that chris bayo was mean to you oh no chris bayo was nice chris bayo's great but the other ones and the people they hung out with were like super not nice to me. I hear. I think they're all nice. I think they're all like Chris now. I could be wrong. All right. So I've heard. It's well, been they, a long time. They really uh, damaged uh, college Jamie. But uh, I guess they do not on. get to put vampire in their name for their shitty, boring, non-goth band. All right. It's a culture, not a costume. I mean, they're, first of all, this is I agree with that. I feel the exact same way about people who are at leisure. That, that this is this is uh, this is not this is functional wear. Like, I don't go around dressed up like a fireman and go, this is, this is what I do for my job. I don't, I don't, this is, anyway, but this is like a goth jock alliance thing we have going on. So I will say, like, so band, like Vampire Weekend is incredibly bland. Um, and I realized that the only reason people listen to them is because they're incredibly bland and because they have, like, a coolish name. So or you because say, you live in New York and you just happen to because, know them weirdly. Because you just love Afropop. Or because Paul Simon needed his entire um, oeuvre stolen by a bunch of oh fucking God. rich kids from Connecticut. Okay, so there are two jokes that I tell when some music is on. And one of them is if someone's playing Paul Simon, I go, is this the new Vampire Weekend? <laughs> and then, like, a bunch of people mansplain it to me that it's actually Paul Simon or whatever. And I find that funny. And the other one is if there's like a speaker that's like glitching or whatever because someone's phone is too close to it. I'm like, is this the new Black Dice? But nobody knows who Black no. Dice are, so it doesn't always land. I know who Paul Simon is, to be honest. But I appreciate. <laughs> but I appreciate. <laughs> but I appreciate uh, the, this is why you do your sociological research. Exactly right. right? Yeah. So, so Vampire Weekend people listen to it because like you can put it on the background and forget it's on. All their songs sound exactly the same, and you'll never notice when one begins and one ends. Uh, so it was just, like, but it was so bland and so mediocre that it, it managed to be offensive in how like actually nothing was going on. Mm. Uh, but that's beside the point. So neutral milk hotel because Jamie and I saw them at Prospect Park several years back. Huge fan. Me going back like twenty years. Love the band. I think they're great. Uh, Andy is looking. He's just throwing daggers at I call me right them, now with his eyes. I call them bad milk hotel. Oh, oh shit! Oh, I wow. thought you, I thought you were gonna Shots say, fired. <laughs> I was going to say chaos neutral motel. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a classic D and D reference. But no. So I because of their name, I thought they were just going to be one of those bands. Like oh, like funky name, shitty music. <laughs> um, but no, the music was pretty good. Uh, also, what's what else to listen to? Listen to. Um, Oh, what's that band? Oh, I listened to the Velvet Underground. They're oh, pretty good too. Yes, they are. Uh, like they're they're fine. The Strokes are not very good. Um, mm, yeah. They have one good album and yeah. like maybe yeah. one good song. That's yeah. the correct take. I think it's all good. 
Oh, I stand wow. white music pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, pretty hard. And people got mad at me. I will say that people. I, I was just like, wow. A lot of these bands sound the same in reference to like the neo indie bands. Because like, there's also like the actual indie bands, like which I guess are kind, which is again a broad genre of you know yeah. post. Before some the, of it dates back to college rock. Yeah. College rock, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of like a lot of the what used to be indie bands were like had like a broad genre. Like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs was an indie band, but they were punk. And you know the Killers was an indie band, but they were like I don't know what you call them. Mormon Mormon rock yeah mormon rock right but they were all fine but now indie just means like a very specific thing yeah. so now, now like that's all like alt rock or whatever yeah. anyway it the, was interesting for a minute like tv on the radio also considered an indie band but they kind of bend genres you ever listen to them i i dated i they were on the list but i got i just like stopped because it's like a hundred thousand bands when jamie and i first started dating i never listened to him and she made her first mixtape for me of tv on the radio and she got me into them great band r.i.p i mean i don't know if they could even be considered white music because most of them are black but yeah, a lot of white people do listen to yeah. them like rise against the machine rage against the machine is also not like white music because like one of the people in it is black but like they just happen to be popular i think with mostly like Suburban kids, mostly suburban kids, but they're great though. Like, but '90s rap music's the same way, right? I mean, like I, I remember being a suburban '90s kid and you also ever been white. To a Wu Tang show? Have I been? Yeah. Or uh, yeah, no, I haven't actually. Well, like Wu Tang is a meme now. It's like they used to be like a. I mean, same thing. I would say like a week Weezer. Like Weezer had a good album. Have or, you ever listened to Death Grips? I hate Death Grips. Wow. Oh wow. I, so like these are like, there are certain opinions that I have that I keep to myself because like they're like <laughs> they're just like they're very personal and I know it's like a personal thing but like everyone loves Death Grips and I do not understand it. Why? It's, it's one of those things that like it's whatever it is about my, my my brain like I think their music is bad and I don't understand how anyone likes it. But like I understand that like, that's a fringe opinion that like it's, it just it just doesn't appeal to me. It's so, the like, way you feel about Gilles Deve, Jamie. You know <laughs> you know it's good, but you just don't doesn't make any sense. It's probably fine, but I just do not like it. <laughs> it's just like I just fair don't. enough. Well, I mean, as the great uh, music writer Lester Bangs once wrote, uh, "De gustibus no est disputatem." In matters of taste. There is no argument. So this was probably the spiciest debate that we ever had on this show uh, so far about which bands we like and which ones we don't. Well, we have to move on to actually talking about politics or I would definitely make you argue with me more about Death Crips. But guess what? It's fine. Saved I, by the bell. I will say I can't argue with you about it because it's just like it just doesn't appeal to me. Like it's an entirely personal thing. Yeah. Like, it's like certain bands, like 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 Vampire Weekends, like they just suck. It's like they're very mediocre, and I think that everyone who's like being honest can tell they're very mediocre. And that's left unity. We can all agree on that. Yeah. Left unity. Oh, yeah. Vampire Weekend. Fight the real enemy. Sucks. We have you know we have more in common. We have a you know dividing <laughs> us is the real thing. I agree. Indeed. But if you ever get the chance to see Death Grips live. I'm just saying, it's a whole different experience. It's a whole thing. Um, That's fair. Jamie's just going to keep talking music for another hour if we don't move on. But, uh, true. you know, well, maybe we'll have you back, Chad, for just a music episode or something like that in the future. I actually don't have very smart music or, like, movies takes because, like, popular culture for me is just, like, a thing I consume. I don't, like, there are people who are good at it. But I don't necessarily like people are really good and really smart at like an analyzing pop culture. But like that for me is entirely relegated to like horror movies and everything else. I'm like, oh, this is a thing I listen to or do. Well, this is why we have on the left uh, the great Leslie Lee, the third who does that analysis. So dum-dums like us don't have to. Moving on to the news. The news. It's news time. We're going to do a little news today. A lot's happened in this last week. Um 
The United States of America uh, lost its collective mind uh, over the semantic meaning of the term concentration camp this week. Um, how do we all feel about this complete and utter fucking meltdown on the part of the media class, a uh, bunch of politicians, and assholes uh, yelling at you on Facebook and Twitter? Concentration camps, yay or nay? Hot take. Concentration camps are bad, and it's bad that we have them. <laughs> okay. Oh, me? I'll go. Oh, no. The, <laughs> what we have right now are 100% concentration camps, both in a semantic and pragmatic meeting. Indeed. It's just like the only reason we're having this debate about whether they're concentration camps. Well, there's a lot of reasons, but really it's because the people who are in favor of them do not want to feel like fascists. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, there's a great article on Esquire that people can check out. We can even put it in the show notes, but it's from a uh, woman, who, a historian who studies concentration camps. And she lays out in many words the reasons why what we are doing on the southern border fits the textbook definition of concentration camps and is, in fact, right in the middle of that slope that is quite slippery that many societies in the past have slid down into exterminationism uh, in this instance. And, uh, of course, what is it, six children now have died in these uh, particular camps? Um, I think that children, adults, uh, many adults. I'm yeah. sure we're not getting accurate information about everything either. Well, well this is the point of of, uh, of the concentration camp is that it's this kind of black box that z- exists outside of the standard legal system. Guantanamo Bay, by that definition, is also one. Right. Because there's no habeas corpus. It's essentially like a black site. And they purposefully on the southern border, the Trump administration and the ghouls in uh, border control and obviously ICE as well. They've purposely put these camps uh, in places where people cannot see them. People cannot visit them and they can barely even protest them because they're in the middle of nowhere. And they're going to increasingly move people to military bases, too. So there's even less oversight. And the only uh, the only like viable way to push back on the concentration camp uh, label for these is that there is some like rule of law that comes into play. I mean, besides the fact that so many laws are being broken and like the way these sites are administered and the way that people end up being put there, we have a president who's already said he wants to get rid of everyone who's undocumented in the country, who says that everybody coming over the border is an animal, even children. So, I mean, like, there's no way you can square that rhetoric with saying that this is somehow like a legal process to control our border. It's, it's, I mean, it's the ter- people, it's terror people who are making these these arguments have just written themselves off from being decent people. And there's, there's no way out of that. And the dehumanization is a huge aspect of how these things progress, right? I mean, like you said, yeah. calling these people animals and then, and part of that process too is you concentrate these people in camps. You don't put enough resources in, as we saw, you know, a lawyer for the Trump administration arguing that children in these facilities do not have the right to have soap and toothpaste and toothbrushes. They literally argued that, that that is unnecessary to, to the courts. Um, once those people start to become sick as they already are and they start to die as they already are, then that makes them even seem even more inhuman, you know, to the 30, 40 percent of the population who, like, doesn't consider them to be their lives to be worth anything. And then that now because they're dirty and they're dying, they're even less human than they were before. And this entire process of, like, dehumanization and destruction of human lives continues and continues. 
Well, there's there's several things at play here. The first is like both what you mentioned, right? So we know that ICE, uh, I think, due to reporting from what Ken Klippenstein has like now suddenly stopped recording deaths that happen in ICE custody. So like there is like this veil of secrecy over what's going on and how many people are actually dying in these not concentration camps. Uh, emphasis on like the not because they're concentration camp. And then you have like this new thing that came out in the news a few, I think a few days ago in the sort of the wave of concentration camp discussion about how, you know, now ICE is pressuring healthcare providers to declare people who are being sent to these camps as physically fit to be detained in these camps. Right. Mm. So like now, like, so now you have doctors being forced to oh. sign off on this, that they, Oh yeah. If they die in custody, they must have been, there must be something else that's wrong with them. Then you also have other reporting by Ken Klippenstein, who's doing great jobs reporting on this, that like shows that the deaths that are occurring there are entirely preventable. Like you have people who are saying, Hey, we know we need to do X, Y, and Z to make sure that we don't, that people don't die in these camps. And so now the deaths are due to negligence. They're due to, let's say, um, gross incompetence. They're due to sort of this gross negligence, of course. And, but, you know, how far away is that from like, oh, this is actually a targeted, you know, death camp now. Like, like, what, like, what, like what makes a, what exactly makes a concentration camp a death camp? You know, obviously we talk about, and this is, I guess, another issue with how rather surrounding the, the concentration camp debate that went on was that the way we understand concentration camps and also fascism broadly is entirely rooted in the, in world war two and yes. the Holocaust. Yep. And so, you know, what that does to the conference, the conversation surrounding concentration camps, which have existed you know, prior to the, the Holocaust and I, and some of the concentration camps that occurred in the Holocaust were modeled on previous concentration camps. Like what in that, the United States <laughs> in the United States and parts of Africa and parts of the global South, you yep. know, you know, what that does to the con- the conversation surrounding concentration camps and fascism is makes it sort of hyper hyper specific. So you say like it's not a concentration camp if X, Y, and Z things that are hyper specific to Nazi Germany are not met. Right. Like they're not fascist if X, Y, and Z things that are you know are exactly the same as Nazi Germany are these criti- these uh these criteria are not met and they're not broad criteria they're very very specific often performative criteria that aren't really related to like fascism or concentration camps but like the eccentricities of Nazi Germany right right cuz we know fascism didn't originate in Nazi Germany and we know that fascism did not end in Nazi Germany it just but there was we just happened to have a particular model of it that is framed entirely around Nazi Germany and yeah and it was completely fucking disingenuous the way those people use it Ellie Valley has been great uh, online and in his cartoons calling this shit out because like you said the concentration camps for obvious historical reasons has a resonance that brings us right back to the death camps of Dachau and Auschwitz but of course the Nazis began with concentration camps or detention centers, you want, whatever you want to call them, immediately when they began their rule. They put the trade union leaders and they put the communists uh, in concentration camps. Yeah, that was the first one. Yeah, it was right. a re-education camp, and they said they were going to do it during their election yeah, campaign. Yeah, and, and, then, and so you have from 1933 until the death camp process starts about 10 years later, right? You had this entire process, right, that moves from simply re-educating and detaining these people in a certain spot, legally, of course, under the law, to death camps. So using this Nazi analogy is also disingenuous and ahistorical and fucking stupid because if you look at what we're doing, again, that is the process that we've seen in the past that has led to death camps yeah and negative shout outs to any conservative jews who are trying to police the definition of concentration camps and say that this is specific to the jewish holocaust um i don't know what world you're living in but there is nothing in my jewish upbringing 
or just my general moral upbringing as a person in the world that would say uh, we should not care about this when it happens to people who aren't Jewish. And like we, we even want to err on the side of caution in seeing fascistic elements and concentration camps and all of that horrible shit when it happens in real time. Otherwise, what are we doing? And, and never again does it mean like the 30s and 40s are going to completely replay themselves out exactly as they happen to the same people. Never again, which is, of course, like a rallying cry to say that what happened in those death camps, what happened under Nazi Germany, what happened with the Holocaust should never again happen to any to people. To anyone. So conservative Jews, yes, like Ben Shapiro and others, like you are fucking monsters and you took the wrong fucking lesson. I mean, I'll go as far. No one learned anything from the Holocaust. And like even the never again cry is more of a symbol that no one learned anything because it's happened since then. It happened before then. And so the Holocaust and World War II exist by nature of a few factors in this like weird bubble outside of history, outside of any sort of genealogy that leads to the Holocaust and any sort of genealogy that leads from the Holocaust. And so, you know, I think that everyone can agree, except for like literal neo-Nazis and even and also some like, you know, uh, crypto fascists that the Holocaust was bad. It was a terrible thing that happened, uh, you know, to put it mildly. But what that like what led to it and like what implications there were of it and for it like no one seems to have any learn any lesson from it other than like you shouldn't be anti-semitic right so like you know when you learn about the holocaust in school i feel most people learn about like the inflation due to the weimar republic and sort of the aftermath of world war one and you know and sort of like the uh the the compensation that germany had to pay to like the the, the other um the Versailles uh, Treaty. The, yeah. the Treaty of Versailles, yeah. the first Treaty of Versailles, maybe it was the second, doesn't make a difference really, um, about that, like that aspect of it. And then they learn about sort of like the march up and the demonization of the Jewish people. But do they really learn about like the long history of demonization of the Jewish people in, you know, in, uh, you know Europe. Do they learn about the, 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 Catholic, the role the Catholic Church played in that. Uh, do they do they learn about the sort of the role that like the sort of the integration of the Jewish people into European society prior to the Holocaust. And like, or even like the the lessons that the Nazis learned from other places, specifically the you know from the eugenics from the United States of America, yeah. uh, and all of those other things. Uh, their their uh, colonial exploits in uh, what is now Namibia, yeah. which was German uh, Southwest Africa, where they first had their concentration camps in the nineteen uh, in the early twentieth century. They they basically they called them the Hottentots, the tribal people of West Africa were. Uh, essentially exterminated by uh, driving them into concentration camps and then into the desert. So that German policy under colonialism was then brought home. And this is actually one of the uh, definitional, like one of the analyses of what fascism is, right, which is like war abroad coming home. And before we move on to ICE stuff, because, of course, Trump's been tweeting about a lot more of this uh, immigration stuff, um, you know, Rwanda happened, right, in the 1990s. Serbia happened in the 1990s. And so never again, obviously, you know, yes, we did not learn that lesson because millions of people died there, thousands died. And then I think I hear right now that China has uh, concentration camps, millions of people, millions of Uyghurs in that. We also have a massive prison system right. that where there are these punitive budget cuts the same as in 
these detention centers for for children and for refugees. So where people are, you know, in the the DeKalb prison and the MCC in Brooklyn are two examples that we hear about because there's been protests against it. But it's universal in the U.S. prison system that people are living in incredibly unsafe and unsanitary conditions and just being given less and less in this kind of like attempt to make them barely alive, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. So, I mean, I think people are expecting the, the, the people are, are really literally expecting like the next Holocaust to look like the first Holocaust with like swastikas right. and like Nazis and like, like a Hitler mustache on Trump. And that does a disservice to the entire, the entire, like what history is supposed to be, which is like, Oh, you know, not necessarily a, a very specific, like where and when, but like how, how did the Holocaust, how did we get to the point where we get to the Holocaust? I think people forget that Nazi Germany and the Holocaust wasn't kind of, kind of didn't you know, that was something that happened in like in hindsight, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, like we, the analysis of it is something that we need to be sort of take a lesson from. But unfortunately, people have kind of just like they, they they've honed in on certain very specific key eccentricities of it. And they go, okay, well, as long as this specific thing is not happening again, then it's not. Then you know, then it's not. You know, it's not as bad. It's never happening, and it's become a very. Um, it's become like sort of a tautology, right? So right. It's, like, it's like it's it's it literally can never happen again, right? Because that's how the past works. <laughs> yeah. And so like as though, and then this can never happen again, right? And then you see again, you know, Jamie brings up the kind of like this sort of dueling narrative aspect of like, well, is it a concentration camp? But it's not a concentration camp. It's like, well, yes, it literally is. It's like regardless of like what individuals who have the ability to index like the history of the Holocaust are able to say, this is a hot, this is a concentration camp. And at a certain point, you know, I I can make it canceled for this. You have Ooh, to be. Do you, tell. No, like, there is this certain aspect of the media and of like even the way we engage in talking about like histor- history and structures and like oppression that really centers the narratives of people who can who can you know who can reasonably index identities that were implicated by those things, right? So you talk about this particular, is it a concentration camp or is it not a concentration camp? We had a similar conversation about prison slavery when we found out that Hillary Clinton had like owned slaves. Where it was, right. like, where it was like. You, two people dueling over like to, they just find two black people to talk about whether this is slavery or this is not slavery it's like that's not an effective way to understand oppression right. it's not an effective way to under like to to counteract these larger systems because at the end of the day we just have like ben shapiro on one side and ellie valley on the other side arguing about whether something's in a concentration camp but you know people are dying yes it's like people are dying and, and suffering that, and suffering and, and and just to to close it out the structural thing that you mentioned is super fucking important because the madman theory of history that hitler was just like crazy and he just like was a really bad demagogue i mean yes he was a horrible maybe the worst person of all time everyone but, fell under his spell and right, lost their minds yeah. and, and then, the then they Holo- got better and, and, and the holocaust is this unique event or whatever you have to look at the structures of interwar europe and look at the effect that capitalism and its crises played the effect that like racism and race science played on all these things you cannot look at it individually trump is not hitler trump can never be hitler because there was only one hitler just like these you know concentration camps on our southern border as you said will never Never, you know, exactly match what happened in the past. But if we look at things structurally, we understand the forces that give rise to these things. And then, of course, also the consequences of them. If we don't do something to stand up and to protest and to fight against them. So let me just say, I just add this to, I know you want to move on to the next section, but I'll just add this. Cause we, you know, we also had the, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the attorney for ICE or the attorney for the DOJ arguing about like why they shouldn't have soap. And obviously people were real pissed off at her. People were incredibly pissed off for right for right for reasons. So that they not only say they doxed her, but they like that's not what happened. They mostly this is who she is. 
This is her office. This is her, the, her office's number. You can call this person and basically call them a monster, which you should because they are a monster. And then you had, you know, uh, I think it was Eiffel. I can't remember her, like her first name, but Cheryl Eiffel might be a, a full name who comes like, hey, you know what? She's just doing her job. Yeah, like she's just <laughs> out there. Like this is the job of DOJ attorneys. Uh. And, you know, like ultimately they're forced to argue for whatever like the, the president or the state is doing because like that's the way the criminal justice system works. But I think you talk about just like, doing their jobs. That yeah. sounds familiar. Doesn't like, it? Like, I mean, but you talk about the Holocaust and you talk about Nazi Germany, you talk about the concentration camps. And I think one of the things that did make them, you know, unique ish versus other things, but also, again, analogous, they have a, a history there it was like the extreme efficiency and the extreme of institutionalized and bureaucratized genocide. Right. You know, again, you had that sort of thing happening in colonial Africa. You had the same sort of thing happening in prisons in the early part of, of the 20th and late part of the 19th century in America. But it really wasn't until like the concentration camps where you had like the influx of the, you know, it, it was a genocide that was made possible by industrialization. Yes. And we again, a lot of American country, companies made a lot of money helping them industrialize those things. And it, a lot of these border prisons yeah. these uh concentration camps are and, privatized yeah, and, and people are making money now off. And i mean you're seeing the exact same thing right so you know just to finish up the first point i was making it was it's just it's this idea that like if if everyone is responsible if we can pass around the blame if no one really knows who's giving the orders except for like the person at the very very top you know every like every every doj attorney has a boss and they have a boss and they have a directive and then like the institution has demands and no one like everyone shares a little bit of the blame there it becomes this sort of like i you know i Arant said it becomes this sort of banality of evil in terms of like it's like okay well if I don't do this I'm fungible it's like there are plenty of attorneys who would take my position it just has to be done so like that sort of absolves me of the majority of my guilt and then you have people like Cheryl Eiffel who sort of they want to widen the the net of who's guilty like well really it's up to the American people to stop this too like it is we do need a mass movement but that is a sort of like that's a very wide birth when you're like you're literally arguing for this in front of a judge yeah. Right. So, you know, it's to absolve yourself. And I will say like the, the um, just to close out the the sort of ruthless efficiency of the industrial age that allowed for the genocide. That was the, you know, the Holocaust and of Nazi Germany. Like it always happened, been replaced by like the ruthless efficiency of the digital age. Yeah. It's like it's been replaced with the what is it, like surveillance state, surveillance state yeah. with Facebook and Amazon and like you know in digital face recognition. And you know what you'll hear from the never again people, or this is not the same thing. People, it's like oh, that can't happen this time. You know why? Because this time we have technology. Right. Like this time we have like, and again we had technology back then. That's what it caused it. But it, this time we we have we have Facebook, we have Amazon. Like that makes it more humane. And that's, and that's fascinating because uh, apparently what's happening in China right now is that uh, they're using surveillance uh, technology facial recognition shit uh, that I don't really understand, but I know it works well now, in order to essentially put these Uyghurs, uh, these citizens, Muslim citizens, into concentration camps and also to, you know, surveil them and make sure they don't leave. So it is a very, as you said, you know, if the Holocaust was like industrialized, maybe this next wave, because I, I don't think that this is going to stop, you know, around yeah. the world, will be more digital. What, well, and that's frightening. That's some Black Mirror shit. It is, because like, ultimately, again, why we learn nothing from the Holocaust is because it's treated as an anomaly. 
an anomaly of the times, an anomaly specifically of modernity. It was it somehow exists outside of time. It exists outside of the Enlightenment, outside of modernity. And I suppose the people like really need to grapple with the fact, no, it was the not logical outcome, but a possibility of the Enlightenment, a possibility of a society that had this like had race science and had an industrialized state and the ability to oppress like a naturalized minority. And so we never came to grips with that. So, of course, it's going to repeat itself eventually because it never really stopped happening. And it also comes out, again, like like a lot of things, almost everything does, it comes out of the contradictions of capital as well. So I'm not taking us uh, too far afield when uh, I mention another thing that happened this week, which was that uh, it came out that the um, ICE, what are the in immigration... Customs enforcement. Uh, I was going to say some. I was going to say the Ceasler. Uh, Immigration's Customs Enforcement uh, was going to be going from uh, city to city. Uh, these sanctuary cities they talk about, including New York City, Los Angeles, uh, Denver, Chicago, and they were going to, uh, in the middle of the night, raid two thousand families as part of what Trump said it will be the mass deportation of millions of undocumented migrants. So, uh, again, you know, like the concentration camps are one thing, right? And that is where a lot of these people end up. But we also need to recognize that um, this threat, which he actually backed down on, um, could potentially come. We need to think about what the implications of that are, where it's coming from. And obviously, people who give a shit and are ready to, like, throw down need to figure out how we counter this when it comes to our communities. So what do you guys think about all this? I'm a little confused why they would announce that they were doing this before they actually did it, because as I understand it, ICE usually does not announce the raids uh, and give people time to prepare, Um, which makes me think either Trump got over his skis uh, on this and, you know, tweeted rashly, as he often does, and blew up his own spot, or they, I mean, they don't have the capacity to round up millions of people. It was probably only ever going to be thousands of people. But it makes me think that the primary goal of this is to terrify people and make them live in fear. The pre- it's a campaign kickoff thing. It was, it was, for, oh, right. it was to fire up his base. Got to play the hits. Yeah. Um, and it, very, he did something very similar to what he did with Iran this week. Uh, he p- called off a strike on Iran at the last minute, allegedly. We don't really know what happens in Trump's brain or inside of his office. But uh, he subsequently tweeted yesterday because I thought we were going to come into this show today, honestly. And there were going to be these raids that happened because they announced it was happening on Sunday. I agree with Jamie that it's a terrorizing thing. But it's also something particular to Trump and the way his fucking, I don't know, adult brain works, that this is like a negotiating tactic for him. He tweeted out like, okay, I'm going to not do millions of mass deportations uh, for two weeks so that I can negotiate with the Democrats. Like it's him using like terror as this tactic in order to negotiate similar to like what he does with Iran, what he did with North Korea, Little Rocket Man, all that shit. It seems like it's kind of how he he plays. He's making deals. Um, I also enjoy the report that came out, uh, quote, Trump is giving up on regime change in Venezuela because it's complicated and he got bored, report says. Um, can you guys imagine being Juan Guaido and reading that report? I First of all, that sounds like he got someone who gave up on playing Sekiro. 
<laughs> you know, I, yeah, I got like, you know, it's a lady butterfly, but the game is complicated. I have a lot of mechanics and I got bored. So I just went back to like fucking playing uh, the Binding of Isaac. But much more simple. It's like Crusader but, Kings 2 versus Checkers or something. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I went back to playing Candy Crush. Uh, I think little... it's fair to say, uh, you know, playing on another trope of Guido that uh, Mercury is in retrograde for him. <laughs> oh. like, Guido, I mean, what's great about like Guido is that like he's going to be like that. Well, first that he's not in jail. Right? I think we can all admit that like if anyone in America tried to do what oh, he did, yeah. they would be in prison for the rest of their lives. But the idea that like Guan, that if uh, Maduro imprisoned Guido, it would like America would like lose, Americans would lose their mind about that. Like they we like they are they're okay with like imprisoning black people for like having like a, a gram of weed mm-hmm. and like a fucking like in you know in their pocket while walk on the subway. But you know stage a coup and for a democratically elected company, well you probably have a lot of, of reasons for that. But like Juan, Juan Guaido is going to be fucking managing it like a, a Venezuelan Arby's in like fucking six months <laughs> and like telling everyone who orders a uh, curly fries about how when he was almost president of fucking Venezuela. <laughs> He's going to be like Walter White at the and end with that the Krispy Kreme. That's exactly what he deserves. It's like, you know, we fucking put, we're going to try to put Assange in a fucking hole for like exposing our war crimes, but we're, we're still kind of supporting Guaido like half-heartedly. But I will say this about, I agree with Jamie about ICE being a terrorist organization. Uh, what they do is they terrorize immigrant communities, people of color. And so I think that when you talk, you can easily sort of weave a, a coherent narrative between like what's ha- like our foreign policy as it relates to Iran and North Korea or Democratic People's Republic of Korea uh, and um, what we're doing internally to, you know, refugees, people seeking asylum, people who have, you know, crossed over into America largely because we've destabilized their country yeah. over the past fucking 30, 40 years. Nobody like, talks about it. You know, yeah. Our, like, domestic and foreign policy is one of, like, terrorism. But, you know, ultimately speaking, it's, like, the way we've constructed the Western world and the way we've constructed our society depends both, I would say, socially and also materially on, like, keeping the global south in a state of constant fear. And the idea that we don't terrorize, you know, these countries, like, we don't have, we don't terrorize and occupy the Middle East. We don't terrorize and occupy Africa. We don't, you know, either through like the army specifically, we have army base in every country in the world. Like it's, it's an issue of national security to us. Right. But really it's just like a neoconservative ide- ideology that's taking us gripped in most of America. That, that the world is simply safer if we are occupying and terrorizing other countries, specifically countries that are led in popular people of color. And I think that we construct this kind of weird false dichotomy of like, okay, we can we can have a foreign policy that's entirely defined by terrorism, that's entirely defined by kinetic occupation and kinetic, uh, our, you know, the world is simply safer when America is doing shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that has no implications for our domestic policy. But then I think what we're seeing now is that with ICE and also you could have just said like our police state, generally speaking, and how we police, how we police communities of color, that like, that's not true. Both because we, like the military weapons that we use abroad eventually get like sort of folded into police forces Deadass. but also you see this kind of liminal population of, of refugees and immigrants that are bringing not bringing but like i have brought in uh fascistic uh neo-gestapo organizations home right which is ice you know as bad as policing a community of color was before ice and before trump was in charge of ice it's like ice is like that on steroids Right, you know, huh? Lifting jokes <laughs> like on steroids, uh, and p- 
people still exist are allowed to exist in this world where first it was like okay well we're doing this sort of weird fascistic shit overseas but it won't happen at home now it's happening at home well we're doing it to the specific communities who have arguably broken the law but law-abiding citizens white people right? <laughs> <laughs> like that will never happen to us and i i what i fear is that we were seeing this slow normalization of you know, fascism abroad, then fascism at home, then like then increased fascism at home, uh, as long as it's the right populations. And then one one day, look, the right populations will just happen to fold in other, you know, will happen to fold in other populations. It won't just be immigrants and like the like in non citizens. They'll be like, okay, well, citizenry is defined more as like less of a naturalized birth thing, which something yeah, Trump talked they about. Talked about, that, but yeah. but really about having the right political opinions, about having the right sort of social opinions. And mm-hmm. I, I think we have to sort of talk about how fascism really, really enforces this this view of the world that like that, that makes people not see the implications of the structures that they're constructing for themselves because they're happening to people who don't like superficially resemble them and how centrism as a philosophy or as an ideology, uh, if, if a broad one or a loose one in having all of these and, and like in sort of constructing all of these boxes that the world fits in, like, Hey, this is political, this is domestic, this is foreign. And they have no sort of interplay with each other. Like w- centrism, you know, left and right, like allows fascism to, to sort of just like, fester within society. Yeah, and I think that's a really good segue to uh, our race section because I get really frustrated with people who say who, who try to box these things off and say, okay, if we want social democracy, which is necessarily done within the bounds of the nation state, we need social democracy in one country, we have to focus on mass action. And when you scratch at the meaning of that, what it generally means is stuff that benefits everyone, including white people. So stuff like immigrants' rights is like, oh, well, you know, it would be nice. It would be nice to help the immigrants. But, like, I don't know how this builds socialism. And, you know, in a lot of people's minds, that is equivalent to helping Bernie Sanders win the election or whatever. But, like, I think it's our job as socialists and as internationalists to draw those connections and say, hey, we don't only care about immigrants because it's the right thing to do. Although, P.S., it is, and that should be enough. But they're workers. Uh, We care because if we want to win, if we want to destroy capitalism and unite the working class as a class across borders and across lines of identity, we absolutely have to care about immigrants' struggles. Weirdly, the key to all of this is intersectionality because the war with Iran... The Arctic uh, sheets melting oh, 70 God. years prior, um, the concentration camps and ice raids, they're all connected to keeping a certain capitalist order unchallenged and unchecked. And they're all connected. So an anti-war movement, environmentalist movement, a pro-immigrant movement not only could be the same thing, but needs to be yeah. the same thing. Uh, that ass. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, um, to I want to just reiterate something that uh, Chad said and and draw this like um, draw this line. I think that that that, that you pointed to, which was um, the carceral state, such as it existed over the last forty years, like since the eighty seventies and eighties, fifty years, and uh, you know the mass uh, incarceration of specifically black people and people of color in the United States. Um, and then, of course, this ice shit that we're seeing now and, of course, like side by side, you know, the reaction to that from liberals sometimes <laughs> and socialists. Right. Like this is, again, a process. It's like you cannot 
disaggregate these things. Just like Andy said, you can't disaggregate the climate crisis because a lot of people are pointing to the fact that the Syrian shit that popped off, you know, some years back was connected to a a drought, a historic drought. You're going to see like more and more climate refugees. They say upwards of 100 million over the next 20 years because places like Honduras, Guatemala, on top of, you know, having been like neo-colonized by like the United States and the World Bank are also going to be suffering from climate disasters. So like Jamie said, to not understand the deep connection between these things for socialists, communists, anarchists, whoever you are out there is to completely miss the point of what we are trying to do. Well, so I agree with everything you're all saying, right? So I would say this also folds into the conversation about how we understand fascism and how we understand the Holocaust and what it has to do with what's going on today, right? Where I think that ultimately speaking, we're, we're not conditioned to draw these patterns on purpose because it would lead to you coming to these certain conclusions, right? Like, obviously, these things are all connected. So you talk about the climate refugee crisis that like, led to the Syrian war. Like, what was one aspect of it? I think Bernie Sanders talked about that in, like, in 2016. People got real mad. Because they want to talk about the, they want to talk about climate change, and like it's mechanics, right? It's like it's okay. Well, the Earth is heating up. It's going to claw. It's going to you know event, It will eventually cause people to and like you know who have a beachfront property to move inward, and it's going to flood California, and it's going to ruin Florida, like the good part of Florida, and <laughs> not the bad part of Florida, unfortunately. But that stuff's already happening. Not only is it happening in the global south, it's happening in the global north. We have climate refugees from Katrina. Like yeah, that, like that, that yeah. problem, that problem never finished. Yeah. We have, you know, like we have, we have these climate, we have climate refugees from the great fires in California. Yeah. And like that, that, you know, like these are things that are already happening and they're happening both in the global North and they're also happening. You know, if you think about world systems theory, like, you know, the core and periphery countries, like you also have core and periphery aspects of these countries as well. Right. So, you know, you have, you have like, and no matter what country you're talking about, you have the, the poorest people who are being the first affected. They're, they're a canary in the coal mine. And so what I think we're seeing, you know, both when it comes to a lot of the stuff is that people are taught to not see us as a canary in a coal mine, but as an anomaly. And part of that has to do with the fact that regardless of where you decide you are on the political spectrum, whether you decide that you're, you know, a proud boy or you're in the DSA or you're a socialist or you're a communist or you're any of these things, the, the key to understanding the way we engage with the world is that there are two hegemonic ideologies. Neoconservatism as a broad as a broad term for like imperialism, American exceptionalism, Western exceptionalism, uh, and all of the sort of the ugly aspects that go along with that, the patriarchy, racism, et cetera, and neoliberalism, which you could say broadly speaking, yes, that's kind of the let's say the PR arm of capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people identify themselves like I'm a capitalist. Like, no, you're a neoliberal. <laughs> like you're that's what you are. Capitalists have shit. Like you're like you're broke as fuck, but you're arguing mm-hmm. for why you why other people should be allowed to exploit you. Sidebar, I hate when people call themselves a capitalist as though it's an ideology. Like as a Marxist, it just literally offends me semantically. Well, you it's not an ideology to be a capitalist. I mean the way it's they're using own, it yeah, is I understand to mean that I uphold capitalism. Yeah, well fuck fuck that yeah. shit. I hate it. So I mean like what's well, so, <laughs> well, so, you hear that, Elizabeth Warren? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so yeah, so one aspect of like neoliberalism is just like I support capitalism. Like I support like the the I support like not even capitalism i support like what capitalism has done to the world but the other aspect of it is like it's a very individualized version of the world you know individualized in terms of like i as a person exist as an individual there you know the margaret thatcher there's no such thing as society right uh but also like that the world simply exists in these little bubbles that they don't affect each other like you know like that there's an apolitical world there's a political world 
and like, like that like that is neo that's a part of neoliberal thinking yeah. it's also part of centrist thinking which is not exactly one-to-one but these are two these are interconnected sort of ideologies if they are a bit loose i mean there's also always been marxists who want to kind of wall off the official workplace from every other part of life and say that only the official the only the labor that occurs in the official workplace is important and could be a site of struggle so like something like social reproduction theory all the things that all the work that people usually women do to reproduce the working class as a class like somehow doesn't matter as much and it's completely fucking myopic because if you look at the, the communist party in the united states in like the 20s and especially the 30s and 40s they were at the forefront you know as marxists in the united states in trying to unite the struggles of black and white sharecroppers in the south the cio was the first major uh union uh, or or um umbrella group in the united states to integrate the workplace and the unions. So like these people that claim like, oh, we need to either do class stuff or if you do race stuff, you're just doing neoliberalism and like maybe it's okay, but like you're a fucking rad lib. Like it, it erases the like the entire history of what communists and socialists have been doing. You know, so I mean, I think it's even less about like sort of the the, McKin- the specific ideology, which like the point I'm trying to get to, and more about like whether or not you're capable as a person of self reflection and, and reflecting upon the the you know the internalized values that you were taught since a child. So like whether you're a communist who. It's able to actually look back on like the patriarchy that you were sort of the like, things that you have been enforced into your brain since like since childhood by your society and, and like in sort of challenge them right you say okay well yeah i because it's very easy to sort of just leave things in black boxes and sort of like oh okay well i'm looking at the explicit text of that i'm reading and i'm a little bit less in, interested in engaging with sort of the the broad spectrum of the hegemony right so you know, broadly speaking, I think that you have a lot of people in society who have sort of pinpointed large, like one specific identity that they want to challenge, and they are more or less comfortable with leaving the rest of that in like a black box. It's like the way things have to be. This is naturalized. Or if you, or if they're smart enough to know that that's no, that's not real. It's like okay, well, it's just not. It's just not. Um, productive. It's not sort of feasible. Like there's always some excuse. Either it's natural or it's just not pragmatic. Right. It's not it's not an ideological thing. It's either natural or it's pragmatic to not do it. But sometimes it's just like, well, like, and with the normies, I mean, normie socialism, right? That's the whole concept. What is a normie? I mean, it's a very ill defined, but very kind of uh, not quite reactionary, but very, I don't know, blinkered conception of what the working class is. Yeah. I mean, I think I've heard it used in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. I'm probably guilty of it myself. When I say normal people, I mean people whose brains have not already been broken by this stuff. <laughs> Basically, people who don't spend all of their time like we do reading the news and theory and going to DSA meetings and shit. Um, I think a lot of people use it, though, to signify some kind of uh, idealized working class person in their minds Uh which they basically, then basically condescend me, to. Basically me, a white guy in a hard hat, right? A guy in yeah. the army. And that white guy in a hard hat is, you know, obviously resistant to any kind of social change or um, queer theory, trans rights, all of that stuff. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, I don't know about this. But um, I wanted to ask you, Chad to get a bit personal okay. and tell us, you know, speaking of ideology, how much can you lift? <laughs> uh, uh, how much can you lift? And how did you become a socialist? Well, so I think a lot of people 
have similar stories to mine when it comes to like the how they were radicalized. It's like I grew up poor in Brooklyn in the nineties and so like a lot of my politics are rooted in my own material conditions. Right. So of course I did go on to college and I majored in this, you know, the, the soft sciences, the grievance studies, <laughs> as like as your as your YouTubers would say. Cultural Marxism. Cult- cultural Marxism. But I didn't really focus I didn't focus in theory, right? I think that I said like I think a lot of people on you know, not to be I guess it's not to be, it's not to be it's not rude. A lot of people on the left, like when they went to school, they focused in like theory. They were theory focused, which is fine. Like a lot of people focus in theory, it's great. Guilty. Uh, guilty. Like it's, I it's for cucks. Yeah. I was more Thanks, of babe. Nerd cucks and uh, virgins, but no, I like I was more of a social researcher. So you know, as an anthropologist, I went to I used to ask people. So you say about normies, like I think that there is this branch of people who think that okay, either you're reading theory or you're a fucking dumbass. And really, the key to understanding people is that like everyone has theories about the world because theories are just pattern recognition. Everyone that goes out into the world and engages with it in their own way and they and it helps them inform what they think they should expect right so i think that there so i think that there is this branch of people who think that okay well the most important thing that anyone can like they they're, they're condescending right so i think that's where you use where it's like okay i need to explain people's material conditions to them and that is like and so i will say like there is this branch of like online arguing that's just, that's constantly just like like we need to teach people what real socialism is now like that's fucking like that's interesting but like you're revealing yourself as like a fucking nerd <laughs> because most people when like you know like, like damn aoc is not a real socialist bernie's not a real socialist no one cares i guarantee you like that's the argument online that people care the least about in so in so far as like they don't care what you call you giving them things that they need to survive and I think that's like the most important aspect of like what's going like what's going to radicalize most people is getting like a fifteen thousand dollar medical bill after their father dies of cancer. Like what's, going, what's, like what's going to radicalize most people is that their their children don't have clean water. Right. Like what's going to radicalize most people is the fact that like they go out into the world every day and work nine to nine. Then like they go home and sleep for two hours and then they work another nine and they work another job and they still can't seem to afford to make ends meet. And what those people are waiting for is like somebody who is going to tell them, Hey, that doesn't make any fucking sense. It's like, you shouldn't have to live that way. It's not natural. It's not natural and not, and you're not alone. And I think that's where like socialism and democratic socialism as it exists as like, a colloquialism versus that's like a theory has to offer people. It's like, it's a mass movement. Like you're not alone. I think a lot of people don't realize just how, how deeply disconnected and alienated most people feel from the world and how deeply enforced that is by our current, you know, political and news media uh, culture where it's like, you can watch, you know, MSNBC and CNN and, Oh, not well, not not Fox News because Fox News is like the real grievance studies. But like, <laughs> you can watch most centrist media, and I well, most people can, and never see yourself represented. Like never see like your narrative represented by that media. And I think that's a very alienating feeling for most people, especially when they you know they hear how good the world is mm. to like the people who are there. America's already great. America's already great. That was the most fucking offensive thing I'd ever like, imagine. Like imagine being like a poor pro- imagine being in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Imagine being in Flint, Michigan in 2016 and like you're you're fucking showering with bottled water and hearing somebody tell you America's already great. That's and why like, it's, yeah, it's, that. it's relieving that Trump is using a slogan of keep America great. Yeah. But yeah. I just feel like the Democrats are going to fuck it up and be like, <laughs> "No, we're going 
going to keep America great. <laughs> well, I think well that- they already released that uh, the the wallpaper. Right, you text boy bye to I like one eight hundred Joe Biden rocks or something, <laughs> and they give you some kind of anti-Trump wallpaper. Like we'll, we'll put that on the show notes, folks. They're gonna fucking lose again. I did that, and they didn't even send me the wallpaper. Oh, like, they, didn't, they, they, they had one job. Like, they 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 promise little and deliver less. They, like, how do you like what they Typical. do is you do text boy bye to their little fucking like tiger tiger teen beat hotline <laughs> shit, and they like they just sign you up for their newsletter. Like, <laughs> They're gonna then, mail you regular wallpaper, and then, and then you have to, like, and then you have to literally like give them your zip code and full name and social security number, and, like, your and bank account, your bank number. account, so they can, they can donate your entire savings account to fucking Joe Biden's yeah. or, like Joe Biden's rehabilitation campaign, and God. then well, like, he's got and, a lot of small donors, and then that, I mean a small amount of donors with a lot of money, and then they give you like a fucking like a choice between a black and a pink wallpaper, and it's the wrong fucking resolution and wrong size. It's like it's gigantic. Gigantic. I have a fucking uh, a Samsung Galaxy S8, and it doesn't even fit my phone. Like, what the what the, what the fuck? Anyway, wow. but I would say I think that what I was sort of trying to get at was that there is this there is this reaction amongst centrists who, and I use centrists to mean the people who like the, like maybe the eight to ten percent of the population who for for whom like things were great. Like things were like they had problems prior to Trump being elected, but more or less those problems were interpersonal. Like they may have had depression, they may have had like issues with the people in their job, they may have been dealing with any sort of like I, you know representational issues. Like hey, there's not enough black people on TV. That's like that's like that's that constitutes a problem for them. And like their like the media is meant to represent their lifestyle, like their lives, the the people who for whom like the greatest the, the greatest form of oppression is misrepresentational. And they can afford to navigate the political sphere entirely symbolically, like like what it means to have the first woman president, what it means to have the first black president, what it means to have, you know, a president who like curses too much. And of course, these things, you know, again, speaking about how the world has been sort of cordoned off into like these little pockets that don't affect you. Of course, the symbolic affects the material. Everyone knows that unless you're fucking stupid. Like, of course, that happens. Of course, there's like a feedback effect. But like, ultimately speaking, most people are not necessarily so overly con- no most people are not as you know entitled or privileged whatever you want to use right because they don't they mean different things but we'll use them interchangeably here most people are not privileged enough to be able to engage politically entirely based on like some the symbolic yeah. level like the, the big p politics as in like how we talk about things versus like small p politics or like power like how we solve problems like, like how like how we like decide where resources go and i think that you have this you know again you have a lesson that, again, uh, I think Annie made a point, you have a lesson that the centrists did not seem to learn, which is that this symbolic engagement with politics is not going to mobilize people. Like, it simply, I think what they expect is that if things get bad enough under Trump, people will turn out just to stop him. But if you prove yourself to be ineffective at solving problems, people will just solve their own problems, or they they, they will do their best to get by. Well, like uh, John Updike said, you know, it's impossible for a uh, centrist shit lib uh, to uh, understand something if their paycheck depends on it, right? There's a whole apparatus here. So I wanted to ask you sort of on that tip uh, about a recent report that I saw showing, uh, making a lot of the fact that uh, Biden is polling very well and excuse me you didn't do a trigger warning yet oh okay i'm sorry please do a trigger Um, warning for the listeners so okay to all of our left com abstentionist anarchist 
etc. Listeners who do not like hearing about electoralism on the Antifada, I want to issue a content warning. Um, we're going to talk about it for a second. So if you can just fast forward like 10 oh minutes, you'll probably God. be okay. Are you going to say you're going to say Bernie Sanders again out loud? Oh, and he's going to walk out of the room oh when she says Liz Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Do you were it. Uh, yeah. So, OK, I saw a report uh, basically saying that Bernie Sanders is polling terribly among black voters in the South in those all-important primary states. Um, specifically, uh, Bernie has dropped to third place in South Carolina among black voters. Biden is polling at 50%, and Elizabeth Warren is in second place. So uh, what's up with that? Okay, well... Speaking I, for all black people. I will speak for all black people. Well, first, I'll just say, like, I don't... Like, a lot of these polls that they do are, like, conducted very poorly. Like, they're done entirely through landlines, which is a terrible way to poll people because, you, like, most people don't... Most, most younger people don't have landlines. Oh, that's what Jamie said. <laughs> uh, but I don't know... I don't know the specifics of how these, these polls were conducted, so I'll just assume... I will just assume that they are actually, like, correct, right? I had no doubt that, like... Back, I will say, but two months ago... Uh, when we were doing flavors of the month, which I guess we're still doing, people were absolutely sure that Kamala Harris was going to win like the black vote in the South. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? No one who knows who she is. Uh, like Biden is going to win the black vote in the South. I, I have no doubt of mm. that. Um, in so far as that, like he is riding Obama's coattails and like that is just the way things are. Like he is going to ride Obama's coattails to win either the plurality or like the majority of black voters in the South. That does presume uh, though that he he doesn't uh, self-destruct before the primaries begin. I think that he would have to do so much to self-destruct. I think this is sort of an unpopular opinion. I think that a lot of stuff is kind of written in stone. Like a lot of voting blocks are kind of written in stone and we pretend that they're not because it makes for a more interesting gamification of politics. Mm. Where it's like you might be able to make slight inroads against you know Biden and certain areas you might be able to make slight inroads against trump in certain areas back even back when 2016 we're like oh clinton's gonna win georgia she's like, like okay <laughs> okay well this will be a kind of a good no. test of that because joe biden has said and done so many horribly yeah. racist things we'll see if he, black people will still vote oh, for clinton him. did too and she won this out yeah but, but most people aren't even he's like, worse than her but like i think most people aren't even really paying attention to that i think you know it's easy when you're sort of mired in the world of like twitter politics to think that everyone ha is privy to the same information that you are about joe biden because joe biden is weird and he's creepy and he's like super duper like oddly racist like, <laughs> like even like, like even he's oddly racist even by like democrat standards like he's that's like, what i'm saying like how did how did he get into the senate he did it by running against busing which was like this hot button issue for yeah, they, liberals in the north because finally it was all well and good to have civil rights in the south but now you're going to desegregate our schools and our our tax dollars and, uh, and my kid's going to have to like sit in a suburban school with a black kid from the city that's why i moved to the suburbs to begin with and that's how joe biden made his bones I, and it's like that's, that's, that is true and it's also weird because like people are like, oh he he was willing to be civil with segregation, I was like, he was a segregationist, <laughs> and then like, like you can't be civil with yourself. It's just like that's like, like that's a weird sort of like I don't know uh, existential question to have. Like, it's very mindfulness of you, but um, Marianne mindset. Right so there. yeah, I, I mean, she's great. She was like she isn't she like one of like the, those Skeksis things from Dark Crystal? Like, <laughs> yeah. mm. it's or it's an orb thing. Yeah. Oh, orbs like yeah. like the glowing one with the, with the Saudis or the different orbs. She's going to. She's uh, a good. Orb. She's gonna uh, oh. bring a, a chicken in every pot and an orb in every home. Well, you can always use an orb. 
I mean, like, oh, like, I mean, yeah. I don't, don't have an orb. It, I, I, I have zero orbs. Why, why, why are you sort of trying to uh, uh, split the left on orb usage? We need Normal people want orbs. Spread the orbs around. I, I think that orbism. I think that you're you're trying to enforce a, a view of the uh, the political economy where there's not enough orbs to go around, like oh, this forced orb scarcity. When really, mm-hmm. there's enough orbs for this. There's one orb for every orbless person. Indeed, the U.S. Indeed. throws away sixty percent of the orbs it produces just to keep the the supply. Yeah. yeah, they, they go it's tragic. Un- they go and they're just sitting in a landfill somewhere in China, on <laughs> like, like rolling around. Yeah, <laughs> rolling around and Roll, glowing, rolling around, yeah. glowing, glowing for no one. Sometimes hovering, like who knows? But I, the in Kansas War- City, they hover. The Elizabeth Warren thing is kind of surprising insofar as that like Elizabeth Warren. I was, I'm, so I'll put it this way: a lot of people are hard on Elizabeth Warren as they should be for a variety of valid reasons. But I like what she is doing in sort of a vacuum insofar as that I think that Elizabeth Warren is a very policy heavy candidate. She's a very, you know, not all policies are good. Some are bad, but you can tell that she's somebody who is thinking through structural solutions to to problems. I don't, dis- I don't like all of her solutions. I think some of them are bad for ideological reasons. I think some of them are bad for practical reasons. They don't work. Right. I, you know, I mentioned it before. It's like the whole, we're going to pay hospitals not to kill black people thing. That doesn't work. <laughs> like, you know, this is not like about being a communist or whatever. That simply doesn't work. It's like, you know, we've tried that before. It doesn't, doesn't yeah. work. You know, you can't pay cops not you to You get sh- a not killing black people tax credit. <laughs> like, That's how we're going to solve structural racism. Yeah. Like, it's not like it's not like a socialist thing that like makes me think, oh, well, you know, obviously we shouldn't mo- commodify black lives. Like, no, it just doesn't work. It's like, simply, like, very simply put. So, I mean, I'm happy that she is doing well from like a sort of a vacuum standpoint. Okay, because that means people are amenable and they, as, they, as they should be. They're amenable to the idea that, that the government exists to solve their problems you know because that's what her campaign is about i think that arguably speaking she would be doing better if the democratic party hadn't spent the last 30 years like convincing people that the government can't solve their problems that they should just learn how to deal with it uh why she's polling well with black people i don't know like she, maybe she's talking more about anime i love it <laughs> black, people, black people love anime that's that's, that's so good is that a thing i didn't know that was a thing it's a, it, it, it is surprisingly a thing black millennials love anime i don't know why i love hmm. anime too but uh she said she was part evangelion too <laughs> She was part Saiyan. <laughs> she went Super Saiyan on the campaign trail. Like all, like all the the blacks between age eighteen and thirty five are like, what the fuck, dude? But no. So like, I'm so I, I I like that she is doing well because I think the Democratic Party has gone like in the Joe Bidens of the world because like he really you know he is the manifestation of all of the worst parts of the Democratic Party. I've heard someone say like he's the worst parts of Hillary and, and Bill combined into mm-hmm. into one person with none of their like positive qualities. And that's so true. He he lacks the charisma. And he lacks the smarts. So like he is just the worst part. He's a doddering old a man. A shitty, shitty synthesis. But, yeah. yeah. But so I'll say this: I bad think that, dialectics. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good band name. Bad <laughs> dialectics. Yeah. So I will say this: I think that Joe Biden, Joe Biden, is sort of a remnant of this Democratic Party, this third wave Democratic sort of ideology that says that like we had to shift to the far right. We had to abandon traditional modes for arguing like what made the left sort of broadly speaking. Uh, viable at the political level, you know, which it was like, you know, the FDRs of the world saying, hey, you know what, as as an ideology, as a party, we have broad structural problem, problem. we have broad structural solutions, we have broad infrastructural solutions to public to public issues, to social issues. We're going we're to integrate schools, we're going to have social security, we have like these wide sweeping programs that are going to uplift your life in a social and material way. Uh, in the 90s, Democratic Party was like, no, fuck that. What we have is that we have memorized all of Bell Hooks. 
Um, we like we 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 will sh- we will sell you shirts that say like intersectional, uh, like just like in fucking bold aerial font for thirty five dollars. They read and unpacking the invisible knapsack. They read unpacking the invisible knapsack. Like uh, Cory Booker has memorized every Langston Hughes poem, and they constructed their like this new moral economy of like language mm-hmm. and symbolism. And like we're the smart party, and in doing so, and this is like sort of why I'm I'm kind of salty about the Democratic Party. They oh, could, we all are. Don't like, worry. Like, but like, in doing so, like you know, we talk about the damage that did, but like a lot of it has to do with like it's so heavily um, altered the way we understand like racism and the way we understand sexism to be like this weird like moral and intellectual failure that exists on the individual level. But not only does it exist on the individual level, you can sort of like opt and inoculate yourself from it just by like doing or being certain things more specifically being certain things like oh if you're a democrat you're not racist point blank well and, and yeah, or if you're black your policies can't possibly be harmful to black people of course or you like if you're black you like i mean that was one of the things that like kind of came out of like the trump election that like kind of was very frustrating where they were just like okay like, we're like economic anxiety right that was the whole thing was, like, okay a lot of people voted for trump out of economic anxiety obviously economic anxiety is a broad thing that encompasses like you know uh, it's, it's coded term for a lot of things, and it's been like an economic anxiety that exists in post-industrial places has been like basically co-opted by the far right and like the propaganda outlet to essentially implicate people of color, to implicate immigrants, and that's like the sort of the bones of neo-fascism, right? You say, okay, we're going to correlate these things, or sorry, we're going to take these things that are correlated, which is like the influx of global migrants from the south, the influx of the increase of poverty and crime, and sort of like addiction and like addiction death, and we're going to create a causative analysis with, with like with um with sort of uh black people people of color uh globalists etc and as a like you know obviously people on the left we understand like oh death the influx of migrants from the global south is in fact related to the collapse of society insofar as that there's an intervening variable which is capitalism yes it's like like that's what's causing these things to happen it's like but ultimately speaking you have like the, you have the center or the, the democrats who like remove who say capitalism is off the table you can't talk about that shit and then you say so you, all you leave is like the far right to say okay well if we can't talk about capitalism let me tell you like what's causing your family to like sort of the, the, yeah, like, the fail and, and 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 a huge failure of the last 30 40 years of policy and politics in the united states has been this conception of politics uh, and policy as anti-discrimination. And of course, we don't want discrimination. But what discrimination uh, assumes is that if uh, black people, uh, Latinx people, uh, queer people, right, if like if there were no discrimination in the job place or for educational opportunities, that you would all of a sudden have like a, a fair and equal society. But if you look at the statistics of of like s- since the, that anti-discrimination discourse, this symbolic discourse arose, you see that inequality is still increasing because under capitalism, again, like if everybody learns how to code, that means that coders aren't going to make any money. And so they completely missed the fucking plot with that. Education is important and anti-discrimination is important, but it's not enough. It's not a structural solution. I have to correct you. It, it's pronounced Latinx. Latinx. Yeah. So I kind of have issues with the economic anxiety discourse uh, it, on multiple levels. I hate the way working class has become a dog whistle for white working class on the right as well as the center left, uh, because as we all know, the working class is not just white people. It's non-white people as well, because it's most people and most people in the world and also uh non-white people 
are not immune from economic anxiety, but it doesn't usually manifest in voting for Trump. Um, And in fact, if you look at the statistics, uh, people of color have more economic anxiety on average than white people do in this country because of the distribution of resources. But the way that this kind of hardship usually manifests itself is in not voting at all because none of the candidates uh, seem like they're going to help you. And that's probably true. It's hard to argue with. Also, people just don't have the fucking time or the energy to get super into the granular issues at play. Also, exactly. And also voting for Republicans is a poor voting for Republicans and voting for Democrats are poor substitutions for like progressive and in like fascist policies. Right. So like we know there are plenty of people who have, who like hold like incredibly regressive re- or reactionary views from a Republican for a variety of reasons, you know, like the, and also again, speaking about like my initial point, uh, it creates, you know, it creates this, like this viewpoint of structural oppression, uh, that ethical like individual personalized things that is in some ways essential to certain populations. Where you have like these people who are able to say, okay, well, obviously I can't be, uh, I can't, you, have, you know, I can't be racist because I'm a Democrat, or I can't be racist even for the like, stupid reasons. Like, I can't be racist because I'm from the North. I'm from, like, I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, like, like racism is a thing that exists in the South, and the South is basically just this place that's entirely populated by like old white males between the ages of like 35 and 55 who like, who use who use the N word. That's what racism looks like, and that and that, and that sort of that. That understanding of the way race and sexism works, uh, it, it manif- you know it it manifests like you know uh, as like a a, comp- a willingness to completely write off entire populations mm-hmm. and, and and things that are viewed as being um, essential or rather like their essential qualities. Right, so you say okay, well, Alabama passed that that anti-abortion law and try like well just fucking just get rid of Alabama. It's like, oh yeah, of course, because Alabama is, in, is entirely just white males. Right. Like, you know, Alabama is entirely white males. And it allows, again, Democratic Party, center left, to homogenize the far left and say, okay, well, obviously, if the Democratic Party is the party of people of color and of women and of queer people as, as, as example, or rather, as indicated by our mastery of this language of symbolic anti-racism and, imbo- and symbolic feminism and symbolic LGBT, you know, I guess queer theory is the best term for it. Like, then everyone who's not us can be sort of relegated to this world of like the white male, the other of the Democratic Party, not the other of society, because obviously like, at this societal level, that's not, that's not the case. But from the Democratic Party standpoint, it's like, okay, well, if you're not with us and whatever we stand for, you must just be like, the Republican, or you must be like to the far right. We're, we are the legitimate left. And so, you know, it allows for this erasure of like a non-white male left. And, you know, and is, it, is it not true, and you're a social scientist, that it, uh, in polling numbers, um, black Americans on average are more supportive of social democratic policies than other cohorts of Americans? So it, so it depends, right? And this goes back to like the idea of the voting Republican and the sort of the conversation about economic anxiety being disingenuous post-2016. Because when you poll black people, it's like they tend to be, you know, again, I think I think most Americans tend to like to on individual issues fall to the to fall further left in our government. And, our, and, like, and also, I would say our media, too. Like if you ask them, about, like, hey, do you think, you know, uh, the government should, pro- should provide health care for its citizens? They say, yeah, it's like, come on, like even when like fucking Trump was running for like president in 2016 uh, primary, then he was like. No American should die in the streets. And everyone was like, yeah, no American should die in the streets. It's like, I think there are a lot of paths to get to, like, um, the, the government should be providing these basic services. But then you have, like, the, you know, you have, like, here was, um, 
your Marco Rubio of the world, like Americans shouldn't die in the streets. That's communism. And you're like, okay, but like, if you label it, people don't like it. But if you say, if you like the bones of these things, like, hey, the government should provide base, you know, the government should provide basic services to its people. That makes sense to people. Uh, once you start labeling it, that makes a little bit less sense to people. They get, you know, because we had this whole propaganda. It was always whole like decadent propaganda. But like at, you know, but partial that part of that I'm sorry, the other part of that equation is that certain things are actually very hegemonic, regardless of whether or not you vote a Republican or not. Like black people are not pro-immigration. Like they are incredibly anti-immigration, right? And if you look at immigration, like in views of immigrants as like a litmus test for like how amenable you are to like, you know, uh, like, you know, neo-fascism, that's a pretty big red flag. Like this idea, an immigrant influx into the country is destroying the country, no matter how you define like destroying the country. It's like that becomes like a, a evidence of the fact that, hey, you know what? We have this broadly speaking uh, fascistic culture and people are being, you know, more or less indoctrinated into it to varying degrees. And just because they're not voting for Trump or they're not voting Republican does not necessarily mean they're not amenable to like, the the what he's saying because the what he's saying is not being challenged on the premises it's being challenged on like the the language it's being challenged on like the execution but the very premises of being engaged in like a fucking forever war or the premises of the idea that hey america that we should have like you know even think not even say like going full open borders but the idea that america should be allowed to destabilize countries is not something the Democrat Party is challenging. No, I mean, no. Negative shout out to the libs out there who are like, well, you know, Trump was going to bomb Iran, but like he should have done so with uh, congressional I, approval. Like, fuck you. So, so you know, so you know what I hear? I hear all the time. It's like I would never from like the black people I hang out with I, or I would never vote for Trump. But so is that but like but but I do agree that we should talk about these immigrants. It's like what? And I think that like that kind of conversation is, you know, is often left out of the media because, again, like being non-white and being non-Republican has become this sort of this cipher or analogy for being inherently progressive. And that prevents us from really analyzing like the deep regressive nature of our, our society. Why would you analyze it? Well, it's impossible to be racist if you're not white. I mean, it's impossible to be racist if you're not like basically it, it's so it's so difficult to be racist in america for rather it's so difficult for like the for the um the label of you're a racist to stick in america like there are mm. so many sort of like caveats for mm. like not being racist even like look at trump like there was like a targeted campaign by democratic party like hey this guy is a rapist this guy is a sexist this guy is a racist we have all this evidence and all he really had to say was I'm a fucking billionaire, dude. It's like, how can I be these things that would be indicative of my moral and intellectual failure if I have all this fucking money and based on your own your your own party's values, like you associate having all this money with being with being yeah. morally righteous, like, or right. at least at the very least, you don't challenge it. You do think that billionaires should have an increased say in our political party. Yeah. Like, if you're not going to challenge me on the premises, if you're not going to challenge the Republican Party on the idea that we should be involved in a forever war in the Middle East, they're just going to say, well, it should be done with drones or et cetera, et cetera. But, like you, like even like look at the the Muslim ban, which has kind of fallen out of the news for recently. Like if you think we should be bombing seven countries indiscriminately, uh, why should like you know why should we not ban their people? Like what exactly is your argument there? Sorry, I went on for so. Oh, I wanted to bring it back to the socialist left for a minute because I do agree with you that a lot of disingenuous centrists try to erase all of the women and all of the people of color who disagree with this neoliberal consensus. Um, on the other hand, 
I have been on the left for a minute, and it really does have a bit of a diversity problem. Uh, I think we all know about that. Um, the DSA, which is the largest socialist organization in the U.S. right now, uh, it, it's not that it doesn't represent the working class, but it represents a relatively small slice of the working class. Um, and it's not as bad as some people probably think it is, but it does tend to be whiter and mailer than the working class as a whole. Um, we tend to come from a pool of downwardly mobile millennials, which is the same pool that feeds into the alt-right, yeah. by the way. And we need to grow our roots deeper into the working class, in the communities where we live, in all of their diversity, uh, if we're ever going to win or have some sort of mass movement. So there are several different schools of thought as to how the socialist left can do this. And it's not, uh, this problem is not unique to the DSA. It's unique to the left as a whole. But, you know, the DSA is the biggest leftist organization in the country. So oftentimes it gets um, sort of used as a stand-in uh, for better or for worse. So there are, I would say, the majority of people in DSA kind of understand intersectionality or whatever less loaded term I should use instead of intersectionality as a way to kind of make our movement more inclusive and build some kind of fighting universalism out of all the particular experiences that exist in the world. Now, there is also a vocal minority on the left uh, kind of losing their shit over it whenever we try to do anything like that. So, for instance, um, the formation of the Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color Caucus within the DSA um, was not controversial in DSA circles, really, but there were some pundits who were kind of losing their mind over it, saying it was uh, a Trojan horse for neoliberal identity politics and bringing those into socialism, when the intent of the Afro-Socialist Caucus was to try to diversify DSA, um, bring in political ed about black leftist movements through history, and nurture some sort of like social sphere and some kind of uh, leadership in the pool of people that we have and make it more diverse so like i don't know uh what do you think about these kinds of tactics and oh yeah and there's the mass action people too who like i said before say oh we should only be focusing on things politically that benefit white people as well because that's just that's just how you win that's how you get more people on your side like well what, 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 speak to that well there's a lot to unpack there as you know as people as the kids sick to say <laughs> the first is i would say that you know the DSA online is a lot different than the DSA in person. Like the DSA Agreed. online seems to be entirely focused around like whether or not you can say the N word. And it's like, go yeah. ahead. It's like someone might punch you in the face, but no one's going like, 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 to stop you. Like, like who cares? Like, no, like it's, but like, Oh, I've never been in an argument IRL about that. Just kidding. Yes, I have. It's just like, but like, you know, I think that's a minority of DSA. I've been to a few DSA. Yes. I've been to a few Afro social, like the DSA in like in real life tends to be comprised of people who are like, you know, we're doing our best, but this, you know, but this, uh, but this organization tends to have a, a problem with people, you know, with recruiting people of color, recruiting like women. 
uh, in the work, but we're working on it. Like they're earnestly trying their best, you know. It's and not think, diversity for diversity's sake. It's yeah. like Jamie said to reflect the class yeah. as it, it exists. Yeah, it's you know, it's, like they're earnestly trying to do it. At the same time, I think that the D, so there's a sec- separate issue, which like the DSA in urban centers, which is like a critique I've heard, tends to be more, like places like DC. I mean, places like well, places like DC, places like New York City, places like uh, LA, tends to be mostly just like what would have used to been upwardly mobile white people who more who are like a lot of grad students it's a lot of grad students so it becomes less of like an organ like of an organizing and mass action organ like, and more of like a reading club for people who like who have read too much theory and don't aren't really necessarily they're kind of interested in mass action but like a lot of this has become more of at the theoretical level you know what i gotta stand up for theory for a second i'm sorry i realize i interrupted you it's fine uh because there is, okay, I agree that you shouldn't get too up in your theory head and up in the clouds in a way that doesn't um, really pertain to people's lives. On the other hand, I think there is sort of an anti-intellectual strain among like right-wing social Democrats who have read the theory and they want to be like the sole interpreters of leftist shit to working class people and they don't want them to read it for themselves because they want to be in charge in like kind of like the catholic church used to do to like the peasants who went there so or under stalin and and then they say oh anyone who thinks you should read theory or 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 not necessarily who like scolds you to read it but who thinks that theory is good and valuable is like somehow uh anti-worker because the implication being that working class people aren't smart enough to read theory or whatever when in fact they have been reading Marx for many a year now and using Marx to try to improve the world. No, I agree with you. And so this is this is my second point, right? So what you're saying is let's like there are people who are like there are people who are going to try to gatekeep like theory, they're trying to gatekeep the left. And so my point about there being too many grad students in the DSA was more a point about like it it's in more or less um mirroring uncritically the values of the center left media space where it's like we're going to we're going to elevate people here who have mastered the language but haven't necessarily mastered like organizing or communicating the language to people so i think the people who are who are like are advocating like anti-intellectualism or even like sort of like pseudo-intellectualism are more they've convinced themselves that they're organizers and activists when what they are are like nerds like they're nerds and they're not teachers either. And so like it's not about whether or not like you read the theory or whether you think about like, okay, well, if you were if I've read the theory and this person hasn't read the theory, can I synthesize the theory that exists in my you know, as, as I once had to do for myself. Like, like, like I had my own experiences, I read the theory, I synthesized them together. Like, can I do that for someone else? Can I go out to a people of color <laughs> a people of color? Can I go out to communities of color and can I synthesize the theory with their experiences? Can I do that? And a lot of people can't do that and they and like they don't care to try. And so what they've decided was like, okay, well, if they can't meet me where I'm at, if they can't just like sort of abandon their experiences to understand that my experience in the worldview is the objective one, then that's their problem. That's mm. neoliberal identity politics. Mm. Like, you know, and I think that, that it, it's it's uh, intellectual laziness on their part, not intellectual laziness on a part of like the average person. It's like, okay, well, you had to be taught something at one point too. It's like you had to synthesize this with your own worldview one point two. It's like, can you, if you can't do it for other people, then maybe you should not be a leader in this space. And I think so. We have what we have, you know, 
generally on the left, especially in the media space, is just more or less a reflection of the same values of the center left, which are the values of society. So, you know, you ask, like, why is the left populated most of our people are by, like, you know, like, why is it all white males, et cetera? Or rather, why are the people who elevate to the top? Well, it's because, like, that's what society is. And so, ultimately speaking, if you're not kind of engaging critically with that, not, not again, not diversity for diversity's sake, but, like, engaging critically with what that means, like, you end up just mirroring it. And sometimes, sometimes that's a, not even just, like, a a demographic mirroring, but a mirroring of values where it's like the left becomes like this sort of, you know, masturbatory space for like not even theory, but like language. It's like who has mastered the right language to, of like of social justice to entirely divorce from its structural, you know, its structural elements to like become a leader in this space. It's like, well, who really cares? Like, you know, like, like it, and that's, I guess that's woke culture, right? Where it's like, okay, well, social justice entirely divorced from its material and structural concerns and entirely about whether or not you have the right language. Mm -hmm. And it's different language than liberals have, and it's it's way different language than conservatives have, but it's still an entirely language-based moral economy that is entirely divorced from, not entirely divorced, because it can't be entirely divorced, but like mostly divorced from actual action. And I think, you know, you you talked about one of the main projects of neoliberalism and like liberal politics and Democrat. It's like one of the main part, you know, one of the main projects has been to divorce power from politics. It's been to create this version of politics that's entirely about language, entirely about, um, you know, again, you know, entirely about the tools and not about the goals of the, of those. Like, you know, have we, like, if we've like, what is diversity for? Mm. It's like, like, like okay, like diversity. Like what? Like what is the you know? Is diversity the goal, or is the point of diversity to basically close the racial wealth gap? Is it to close the gender wealth gap? And so I think that what we have is a version of like, again, in diversity for diversity's sake, not in the sense of like, well, the best person gets the job regardless <laughs> of race, but like diversity for diversity's sake in the sense of like being diverse. So it's like if we just have 13 percent of the billionaires in the world be black, (laughs) that solves the problem. It's like, no, like the diversity is ostensibly or apparently supposed to be for like, you know, closing this racial wealth gap. But I think that we have we've created again, we've created this like this weird space where it's like like the the tools have become the solution, like like the language had like having mastering the language of social justice has become the point of social justice. And that's why I say, you know, I think that like, the problem with having a, a political organization entirely staffed with like grad students and entirely staffed with media people is like those are the people who navigate the worlds where the wor- where words have the most meaning. That's where the people who like who who navigate the world like the world where like language is the currency. Where it's like I know not the I mean I'm a shitty I'm a shitty grad student media person, <laughs> but like you know, but like and so I'm, I'm criticizing myself here too. Where it's like okay. But, like, for most people, words don't mean that much. And it's not about, like, you know, theory not meaning anything. It's about, like, okay, well, how would this, well, like, what is the impact of theory on their lives? I, I think back to what Nate Silver said about, like, about, like, um, poor people don't like policy. It's like, no, no, poor, like, it's like the same thing about, like, poor people not liking theory. Like, no, working class people like theory. They have their own theories, and, you know, and they like policy. They have, like, they have their own, they have their own solutions for the world. But what they don't like is, you know, capital T theory, you know, capital P politi- mm. policy, uh, policy, where it's, like, policy for policy's sake theory for theory's sake it's like okay it has to be mere it has to be sort of like married with like okay well this theory is to explain why x is you know x is like x and how we make x y not like 
not like I'm I'm preparing for my PhD exams theory, and I, and I have to have I have to you know know everything that C. Wright Mills wrote for the you know and Raul and Rawls wrote like verbatim. It's like it has to be contextualized, and I think a lot of people lack the ability to contextualize yeah. theory. And, and that's yeah, praxis. And of course, the point of a movement uh, is to bring people together to fight for. Oh, you had something else, guy? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I would, you remind me. Of, I'm going to interrupt you now. No, please. I kinda, please I, I, I think, is that, a, that one like your show's memes? Every show has their own little memes. Show, I'm, I'm shoes gonna, on the other foot now, Antifada. <laughs> no, but like, you asked me about mass, uh, about mass movements, right? Yeah. And so we should focus only on policies and politics and like et cetera that like you know affects everyone, right? And I think that that goes back to what I was saying about like these people who have you know, these opinions thinking themselves to be like the intellectual, like superiors of like the, of the left, but mostly it's like, it's an intellectual laziness because you can make the case that these, like, you know, like if you think that I'll put it this way, if you think that abortion only affects women, like you're a fucking moron. And it's like you, or if you think that like, or, you know, uh, like, you know, if you think that say like the, what affects immigrants doesn't affect everybody, you lack the ability to draw these patterns because you've been sort of like, again, socialized as a neoliberal and like you're not reflexive about yes. that. I, I explained earlier how fucking, you know, and I'll give another now about how like the, what affects immigrants affects everyone else. I'll give another analogy. There was an, another example. There was an argument a few weeks on the left about like who gets shot more by the police, like black people or white people. <laughs> oh and I was like, okay. And some people were like, well, it's a per capita thing. And it's actually not, not a sheer numbers. So I was like, okay, well, that's a fucking stupid argument because you have to, at a certain point, understand that the only reason that the police exist the way they exist mm-hmm. is because we have a racialized version of crime. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so when you understand that, like, the police would not be able to act with such impunity if we did not have a sort of a, the, socially speaking or culturally speaking, this idea of an inborn naturalized threat in the form of people of color that have to be terrorized, that have to be policed. They simply would not be allowed to exist yeah. in, with, this, with this curb launch. So like, it's, that's, that's one way to say, okay, that is how the racism implicates everybody. Like what you said um, made me recognize something that the left also needs to do too, which is, of course, that when you're talking about incarcerated people, when you're talking about police violence, ultimately we need to have an understanding, like not of who gets shot more per capita or whatever, but what the actual function of the police is. And it is this violent suppression of surplus populations, which is what, you know, the black community has become, you know, in many parts of the country you for a long time. You want to define that, babe, for our listeners? Oh, I mean, surplus populations are populations that are not um, employable or needed by capital, you know, in order to accumulate. They are... Uh, basically populations that are excluded from the economy such as it is and are merely to be dealt with and handled and suppressed and repressed in whatever way possible because they are not needed in order for politicians or capitalists to you know continue this social system and make money and have power but i mean it helps if you racialize the population too. It helps, oh sure it helps, yeah. it helps if you racialize oh, it's well, been extremely racialized is, yeah, I mean, especially in, in this country that's why and again that's why it, it was racialized right yeah. people think that slavery came because you know white people like felt like oh these are these people are inferior and uh we're just bad and evil and we're going to enslave them we're but, gonna be mean because we're mean but no i mean racialization happened in this country because you needed a population of people who 
had no power and had no rights to work for you, to make profits yeah. for you on your plantation. And that is the process of racialization comes out of that because you need an ideological excuse for the reasons why you're oppressing and dominating these people and making them slaves. This is, these are all theories that like, if, we, if we're not good about presenting the structural reasons why the police exist, how race intersects with class, how abortion is also a class issue, not just a women's issue, right? Then we are completely failing, as you said, to turn theory into practice. I mean, even, even to go back to the slavery thing, it's like another function of slavery, especially in the latter part of its existence, was to shrink the proximity between like the poor white and the rich white. Yes. Right? It's like not only the material proximity so you say okay like there's always going to be a, a, a class of people who are poorer than you by nature of being naturalized and born but just like the social proximity you say okay well hey you know what you will never be as low as the you know the lowest uh, the, uh, you will never be as low as the best black person what even even if you so like that creates this like this sort of this it's, it's this, what w.e.b. du bois yeah. called the wages of whiteness yeah it, cre- it creates such a, it creates a closer proximity to um like to the the height of society, of society more or less and i mean I, I think a lot of the, the white lash a lot of the the reactions you're seeing now happens to do with like the small cracks to that system where it's like now we don't have we mean we still have naturalized underclasses but like you but now due to like the small inroads that we've made due to you know let's say the civil rights movement uh the women's liberation movement like all the things that happened in like the you know the 60s and 70s and 80s like you have people like yeah the gender wage gap exists the racial wage gap exists but you know and it's going to sound like incredibly petty and it is incredibly petty but like no one would ever argue that the poorest white man is better than lebron james like LeBron James, as a, as a one individual person, has more social and cultural and material uh, consequence for society than like your average white person. That drives people crazy. You know, like, you know, yeah, you know, women are paid 71 cents on the dollar for whatever, for like what men make for an analogous job, but they can have that job. And like they can, they can have that job. And they can say no. And there's a certain, like, in this collapsing of like the naturalized underclass has left this. You know, an already an already alienated section of the population. You know, alienated by like again capitalism, like without even the ability to pretend like it, that's not what's going on. I will just say this, this one last thing to close out this part of the conversation. Yeah, and so, like, you have both from the center left this argument that if you try to create a, a narrative surrounding racism or sexism or capitalism that is a social and implicates everybody, that you're decentering the main victims, right? You're, you're decentering, you know, if you try to create a narrative about abortion that, like, that includes, like, hey, here's how it affects men, here's how it affects all society, you're, decent, you're decentering women. Like, you know, here's, you know, here is an argument about police brutality that affects everybody and how it affects everybody. You're decentering the primary victims, black people. Of course, they don't want to solve those problems. They, 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 lack, the, they lack the structural they, they lack the ideological bona fides to even try to accomplish those problems. They just want to talk about it. But, you know, and some people on the far left, they, they think, you know, they exist in this world where it's like, okay, well, if you try to do that, or rather they're incapable of doing it, like, you're just engaging in neoliberal identity politics. And so it becomes incumbent upon people who are serious about those things to, like, you know, not give in to the idea that you can engage, like, you can engage in the social project in theory of the bubbles. Like you have to be able to say, okay, well, I understand that we have to have empathy for particular groups of people, but we also have to be able to like, you know, weave narratives that actually explain the scope of these problems in their cost to society, not just pretend as though it's something that exists in like a population, that it can't exist in a population. That was everything I had to say.
All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, Chad Vigorous at Pretty Bad Lefty, uh, Twitter.com, and also the host of the Discourse podcast, which you can find on Patreon. Thanks so much for coming on, man. No, thank you for having me. You know, I, I love talking to like-minded people. Well, cheers to that. And That uh, is the mindset. Stay tuned for some bonus content, which will be released soon. <laughs> <laughs>